Hi, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is Thursday, July the 7th. This is episode 3,120 of the Survival Podcast. And my special guest today is Natalie Brunel. For those that know who she is, you know that means we're having, yes, two episodes of Bitcoin Breakout this week. I know I promised one, and all other four would be you know, devoid of Bitcoin talk in general. That is the plan. It's a short week. I had a reschedule because Natalie's a really busy person. If you're listening to this now and you're like, I didn't look at the title, Jack. I didn't know this was going to be Bitcoin. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to tune out. I'm not a Bitcoin person. You should listen to this one anyway. 80% of this conversation is not about Bitcoin. It's about problems in mainstream journalism. It's about having the courage to start something of your own. It's about being the child of first-generation immigrants and being a first-generation immigrant yourself and building your own thing up from absolutely nothing. It's a story of success. It's a story of loss. It's awesome. It's awesome, and, and you'll be hearing the woman who has the number one Bitcoin uh, uh, podcast, number one Bitcoin podcast out there, run by a woman, uh, and that's that's saying something. There's some pretty successful ones out there. She's an awesome, awesome person. It's an awesome discussion. So give this one a listen, and you know, so come for the story, and maybe stay for the little bit of it. That's Bitcoin, or it's really half. But come on, give Jack, a, give Jack and Natalie a shot. Maybe we'll orange peel you today. Anyway, with that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Look, America has devolved into a place where people call a guy for everything. People don't have any hard skills anymore. Maybe you do. But are you passing them down to that next generation? Here's an idea. Why not get that, that son or daughter or granddaughter or grandson or a niece or nephew and build a knife with them? What kid doesn't want to build a knife with their grandpa or their dad or their grandma? And anybody can do it. It's not that hard. Not if you start out at knifekits.com. Think about it like back when you were a kid, you used to build models. Like I did anyway. And you had like the really complex models that you had to glue together and make a battleship or whatever. But you probably started out with like kind of a little bit of a, like a snap together version. You put some decals on it, maybe painted it. It's kind of like that. It's like that, but different. You ended up making a knife. It's not that much of a kit. There's a little more to it, but the shape of the, the, the blade and the tang and everything's already there. You select your handle material and you put it together. If you need help, there's plenty of videos available. They have books and DVDs. You get a discount as an MSB member. It's a great way to start making family heirlooms. For some people, it becomes a hobby. For some people, it just becomes something they try a couple of times just to learn some skills. For some people, it becomes a side business. And for some people, it becomes a full-time business. The, the world of night making is an amazing place. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Long-term sponsor. Been with us 12 years, guys. Loyal to us. Be loyal to them. Next up, the Free State Project. This is a cool idea. You want to go somewhere with more liberty. I know that about you. You do. At least many of you do. And you've heard about the Free State Project, and you're like, is this for me? It's a big commitment to move across the whole state to a, a place like New Hampshire, a small state in our northeast. But it's a cool place to take a vacation. What if you just took a vacation there, and while you're on vacation, met some really cool people who can point you to the things that the regular tourists never see, introduce you to some other cool people, check the place out, kick the tires, take it for a test drive, and see if it's right for you. To learn more, go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH. And with that, let's introduce our special guest today, Natalie Brunel. And we are live, folks. Today we are joined by Natalie Brunel of Coin Stories. 
and the Hard Money Show. We're going to be talking to her about a bunch of stuff. Just a quick reminder for everybody uh, watching this video, though, if you see anything down in the comments below and it says something like hit me up on WhatsApp or something like that, it's not me, it's not Natalie. I guarantee you she doesn't do that either, and there's a lot of scams out there, so please be careful. And with that, hey, Natalie, welcome to the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this. I am uh, glad we got you on um, through Twitter DMs, no less. That doesn't always work, but it did this time. So uh, <laughs> I, I really love the work that you're doing. I want to start you. out, though, talking a little bit about your background. Um, I know you are the daughter of Polish immigrants, or at least on one side of the family. I don't know the whole genealogy. I come from a, a background of being a Ukrainian immigrant family. And I think there's kind of some similarities there. So how do you go from kind of that background to ending up with a career in journalism? Yeah, sure. I'm super proud of my immigration story. My parents and I were born in Poland and okay. we came to the U.S. when I was five years old. So I really don't remember my life back in Poland. Like I look at pictures of myself and we traveled a lot for my parents' work um, because they would import uh, merchandise and sell it in, in Poland. We would basically go go purchase it in different countries and then sell it in Poland. So that was kind of an interesting thing. But I don't remember those trips and, and those memories very, very well. But we came to the U.S. when I was really young and my parents basically started over um, and they had to learn a new language. My mom was in her late 30s. My dad was in his early 40s. And uh, and I just watched them work really, really, really hard. They, um, you know, were my dad would get up at like three o'clock in the morning and be de-icing his car. And uh, and my mom would would work as well. But she would always kind come home and make like a Polish dinner for us. And they were just such loving, loving parents that instilled me with a really strong work ethic and um, this sense that like education was going to propel me in life. So I had to be a good student and, uh, you know, and just like be a good person. My family's religious. And uh, so, yeah, so it was um, it was a good upbringing in the sense that I felt loved. I felt rich in love and support and encouragement to do whatever I want, but very poor in financial security. My parents really it was really rough for a while. My we didn't have enough like the apartment that we lived in was so small that my parents slept on like a pull out sofa and uh, I just watched them struggle. And so for me, I was always like, I really um, I really want to pursue a career and become successful so that I can help my family and so that I don't face the kind of struggles for when I have a family someday. Um, and I always wanted to become like a, a person in media, journalism, or I even thought acting at one point because I watched a ton of news and movies growing up. Uh, it was always, they were always on at my house for two reasons. Number one, my parents would be working or busy. Um, so it would be, you know, entertainment. But number two, it would help my parents augment their English skills and help them learn how to, how to speak English. So we had all, you know, the news programs on that I would watch and I would want to become like Barbara Walters or Oprah Winfrey. Uh, and then we also watched a lot of movies. So I always knew I wanted to work in this like four angled lens environment. Um, but yeah, so I pursued journalism in college, you know, and my parents were super supportive, but I know they wish that I had studied biology and gone pre-med, but I, uh, I disappointed them with journalism. <laughs> <laughs> That that you know that's the thing too. A lot of times parents want kids to do a certain thing, and I always I always tell yeah. my listeners like you get one chance to choose the path for a person, and it's yours. And if you yep. didn't do it, like your kids, they get to they get to choose their path, and that's what we should be looking for as parents is to guide our our kids up in that way. And you can yeah. want one thing, but I think we end up proud of our kids when they when they work hard and achieve. And and you did right, so like yeah. you actually achieved like for journalism, broadcasting, and what have you. 
Like you really achieved a lot. You ended up doing really well in mainstream media. Well, thank and, like, you. That that had to be a point where like you know your parents had to be like, wow, this is great. You had to be like, this is great. And then you you did this you know crazy thing, and you said, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be independent. And the path of independent journalism, I know, is is it's a tough one. You are yeah. all in, all for yourself, and nobody cares at least initially. What made you decide I'm not going to do the the MSM thing anymore? I'm going to go do mm -hmm. the Natalie thing because that takes guts. Especially when, like, you're walking from something that is successful. That's totally different than, I got a journalism <laughs> degree and nobody hired me, so now I'm independent. That's that's a different thing. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And I think, you know, the immigrant background, I think it makes you a, a risk taker. Uh, and so even when I discovered Bitcoin in 2017, I really didn't understand it, but I, like, put some money in it because I just, I feel like, I'm emboldened by this idea that if you don't try, then you'll never know. If you don't ask, then the answer's no. And that's how I was always kind of brought up. And that's honestly what my journalism career taught me as well, because I, you have to be so resilient and intrepid as a reporter. You know, you have to knock on doors and you have to ask people on the worst day of their lives to talk to you with a camera, no less, right? That's not easy to do. You have to find ways to ask questions and make people feel comfortable and just take chances, take risks um, so that you can try to get the information you need for your for your storytelling and your reporting um, but ultimately you know I my industry changed a lot as I went into it and over the 10 years that I did it when I was in college um, you know like I mentioned when I was little we would watch appointment television and everybody really watched television there was no Facebook YouTube uh, you know news feeds online Twitter you literally would turn on the news at 5 or 5 30 people knew who their local news anchors were and you watched all the same national personalities and it was a much more um, predictable, stable, and lucrative path to be kind of a journalist, right? And I was very determined because my parents instilled me with this idea that like, you know, even if one in a million can get to that level of being national, being, you know, Barbara Walters, well, like someone has to be that one in a million, right? And like, you can, you just have to work hard. Like you have to be the first person in, the last person out, be kind to other people, you know, just work, like work hard and you can achieve your dreams. So I always was instilled with that. Um, but I go off to college and boom, the internet is just like taking over and transforming the economy of television, um, where, you know, advertising deals that they're now competing with the internet and things like citizen journalism and YouTube's coming out. And so all of a sudden the business model kind of flipped on its head. And what was once the job of one person where you would have, like, I would be a reporter and that's it. And someone else would do my lights and my camera and this and editing. Now you're doing all of those jobs, but you're being paid one fifth of what, you know, someone was making before. So, you know, the business really changed and I did not have a fortune, like a fortune ball to tell me that when I went into the yeah. industry. So it was challenging because I entered in as the industry was almost like collapsing on itself. And I felt like um, mainstream media I, I felt like there used to be a lot of independence in local markets, but now they're starting to be gobbled up by the big corporations. And we were all of a sudden becoming more and more polarized. Now there's a, there's a right and a left. And, um, and so I, you know, that was the backdrop against which I got my journalism experience and cut my teeth in these different, uh, different uh, markets. And I think also the last thing I'll say about that is, um, in 2008, 2009, my parents lost everything in the financial crisis. And again, that was just as I was entering into the industry. So I had this seed sort of planted. I had a predisposition when I entered the industry of 
there's something wrong with the system because my parents just worked really, really hard. They're good people. They pay their taxes. You know, they both worked jobs. They were able to afford a mortgage and now they just lost their home. But the big companies and the big banks got bailed out. Like, how did this, ha- how did this happen? How did our global financial system almost come to the brink of collapse? Uh, and I never learned in school what quantitative easing is, what the money printer does, how it works, what the history of the financial system is. But again, I had this like seed in my brain, like something's rigged or off with the system. So I did my experience as a journalist 10 years and 2017, I discovered Bitcoin. Didn't go down the rabbit hole until 2019 when someone gave me the Bitcoin standard. And then it was like, oh my gosh, this is why all the problems I've been reporting on exist. This is why people feel left behind and everything's getting more expensive and we have increasing poverty and we have corrupt politicians who pledge money and they never lose their jobs, but all the problems just balloon and balloon and balloon. And I was like, oh my God, it's because I didn't understand how money works. I didn't, I didn't even understand how our money system function. And so then I became passionate and I devoured everything I could. And I decided to start a podcast just as a passion project, uh, a hobby on the side. And then it started to gain traction. And I was able to come to a point where I said, you know what, I could probably make more of an impact by going off on my own and spreading knowledge and education about Bitcoin and our current financial system than I could to remain as a reporter, which you're right. At the time, I I had a good position. I liked my station. I liked my boss and my network, but it just, it still didn't fit quite right because I wanted to share these other things about the world and why these problems were happening and not just like who, what, where, when, how, why these are the, you know, this is the problem. Well, like I know what's causing the problem. The problem's the money. Uh, so I wanted to focus on that. And I know that's a long winded answer, but no, that's basically how I came to it. It's a great answer. And I just, you know, there's a lot of people doing this now. And I think the whole like work for one fifth the wage and do seven times the work is part of it. But I think a lot of it is freedom. I don't think you would have the freedom to talk about the issues you really want to talk about if you worked for CNN or MSNBC or somebody like that. Yeah. I mean, basically you, I mean, as a reporter, especially when you start to have real opinions on why things are happening, it's hard to be in an environment where you can't share some of those thoughts, right? And you can't connect those dots. Um, and I always loved storytelling. I always loved television and cinematography, but I felt like I, I really want to, um, you know, share knowledge about why some of these issues that I'm reporting on are happening. And so many of them to me are rooted in our financial system. So if I would be reporting, you know, here in LA, I was an investigative journalist. I would do stories on like homelessness or public corruption or, you know, elections or this or that. And I couldn't really get into the nitty gritty of why our, our, why these problems were getting worse and worse and worse every year when we were just pouring money on them because the government solution is always, well, spend, 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 right? I'll, I'm the one that's going to spend more. I'll fix the problem. Don't, you know, that guy's to blame. And, and we, it's so much more nuanced than that. And I really wanted to focus on that like side of educate, helping educate people like, Hey, no, 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 no. This is what money printing is. This is what the Cantillon effect is when it comes to the money printer. This is, you know, the relationship between banks and, and money and the state. And I like, that's what got my wheels going at at a certain point. And Bitcoin was that thing that, you know, could usher in hope because one thing I want to mention, and maybe some of your audience has felt this way too. Before I learned about Bitcoin, I started to get kind of, I started to get kind of negative about the future, you know, and you could probably imagine I'm always reporting on negative things 
as a journalist, it's always doom and gloom and, you know, what bleeds leads. That's the, that's the proverbial yes. thing. Um, and I would think like, gosh, like, you know, my friends don't want to have children. Everybody thinks it's too expensive to have a house. People are spending more than 50% of their paycheck on rent. Um, like what does the future look like? I, I just, I don't, I can't even imagine a happy, peaceful future at this point. And then I learned about Bitcoin and it was truly, I, I mean, this is going to sound maybe, you know, altruistic or whatever, but like I saw it as a beacon of hope that through technology and through this new network that nobody owns, no one can manipulate, we can kind of lay the foundation for a new economy and, um, and a new system of value that can hopefully reorder us into a more cooperative, prosperous society at large. Because I do feel like if you're a good person and you want to work hard and you want to add value and you want to take on risk and, and drive, you know, progress, there should be equal access to opportunity. We won't all be equal. It won't be a perfectly even society, but like we should have opportunity. The opportunity should exist. Yeah. You, you've caused me now to jump ahead in my questions because I want to hit on this <laughs> thing with hope and it's all truistic thing. Um, leading up to this, I listened to a few of your shows, pieces and parts, and I've always been a fan of, uh, Dave Portier on uh, from Barstool Sports and yeah. his, like his success as an entrepreneur is where I've I've been there, but during the interview with him, he kind of crapped on the whole altruism, like Bitcoiners are in it to make the world better and all. He said, I just yeah. think they're in it for money, and there's a little bit of you know mirror I think action going mm-hmm. on there, and there's nothing wrong with being in a business for money. I am. I'm a anarcho capitalist to be completely upfront, you know, um, but they're also like, you can be anything for money and you can be anything for the right reasons at the same time. Like right. I think the best way to incentivize society is do something that is profitable, and actually beneficial at the same time. Yeah. And to me, I don't think Bitcoin fixes everything, but I think it fixes a lot of things or one of the problems we end up with these, this, this uh, like a utopia fallacy. Mm-hmm. If the thing you're proposing doesn't 100% to solve the problem, which mm-hmm. by the way, we've had this problem since the dawn of civilization and none of the, none of the crap you guys have done has fixed the problem. Right. If it, but if your solution doesn't make it perfect, your solution's flawed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and I know you didn't push back real hard and, and I don't do that with my guests either. I'm not a big debater. I like want to hear the other side of the story. It's kind of what I love about your interview style. Um, but from your perspective now with, free and open to say this, do you feel that a lot of people in Bitcoin really are here, maybe in the beginning it's number go up, but over time as they do the research, because he's not, he's not orange built in my, in my mm-hmm. opinion. No, do you think a lot of people come in and it is number go up and that's why they go in and shit coins like Doge or whatever, but when they go and do the research, don't you think they do begin to see this larger view? Yeah, I mean, I I try to give them some points, right, about different aspects of Bitcoin and why I truly believe in it. But, you know, I, I do disagree with him. And I think that when I hear people just make assumptions that, oh, people are just in it for the money or it's just this, it does indicate to me someone who has spent countless hours researching Bitcoin and the technology network and the programming, all of it. It just indicates to me that they ha- just haven't gone down the depths of the rabbit hole. And so they see it more as like a stock or an investment that at some point they'll, they'll, um, 
exit potentially mm-hmm. and take profits. And, and I think when you do learn about Bitcoin in this grander picture of, you know, changing our system from one of credit and endless debt, this debt spiral that we've been building on that requires so much money printing to just sustain and, and balloon, like creates this wealth concentration and this disparity in society that gets worse and worse over time and sparks populism from the bottom. Um, I think when you look at it from that backdrop, you start to see that Bitcoin can actually create a system based on something that is disinflationary or deflationary. And uh, and we can, again, rebuild, sort of build a new economy where your money actually goes up in value and hopefully things become cheaper, you know, over time. We we can live in that world. And I think so many of us just don't envision it because we're, we've never seen anything outside of that paradigm. But I think it takes that sort of like rigor and education and knowledge about how the financial system works to understand and have foresight of where it's going if we maintain the fiat debt standard versus like, you know, the imagination of what we can rebuild on the other side that could potentially be much better. And I do think like what you mentioned about incentives, you know, Bitcoin kind of flips greed on its head and takes greed, which naturally we, I guess, have as human beings. We're naturally greedy, as people say, and it and it it flips it on its head to make it be something for good that benefits everybody. Like if Bitcoin, you know, wins and we all are in Bitcoin, it should hopefully benefit everybody and, and encourage people to provide value based on something real, based on supply and demand, based on real interest rates, based on just real elements of our society that have been skewed by crony capitalism. I think we have crony capitalism where uh, the state has increasingly too much power. The state uh, takes advantage of its, prerogative over money and its power over money and to issue money and make money, um, create money and, and the connections that it has with these too big to fail corporations and banks. And all of it is to the, you know, to the, um, to the loss, to the disadvantage of the majority of people in society who don't own assets, who aren't landlords, who don't own a bunch of equities and people get, people feel pushed down and left behind. I mean, this is what sparks populist revolutions and people feeling frustrated and civil unrest and people are looking for places to blame. So now I, I see my whole experience, you know, as a journalist totally differently because I covered the civil unrest and the polarization so much in my time as a reporter. And now I'm like, well, of course you're fighting each other because you have, because social media brings out this you know, side to us where we feel like we have a wall, but you know, in front of us, we were protected so we can say things we wouldn't normally say across a dinner table to someone. And we just are trying to find someone to blame for this feeling that we have that the system has wronged us, that it's unfair that someone at the top has so much and I'm trying so hard to get by and I have so little, like, why is this so unfair? People feel like it's unfair. And I think most people don't have aspirations to have, you know, 50 yachts and become the next Jeff Bezos or flying to Mars. Most people just want to take care of their family, put food on the table, afford their college education and a house and a nice vacation. Like most of our needs are pretty simple and people mind their own business nine to five and they just don't want to get screwed over by the system. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I, the way I described it is Bitcoin brings back seventh generational thinking. Yeah. And that's why it's hope because it starts to make you think about your future. And if yes. you look at all the problems we have in the world today, it, it arrives from scarcity thinking. Like if you want the solution totally. to conflict, what you're looking for is abundance rather than scarcity. Yeah. And when we look at scarcity, there's natural scarcity that's in earth. There's only so much can be done about it. Like there is conflict in the northwestern United States, like Colorado, Wyoming, over water because water is scarce. There's no conflict over water in Florida. 
Yeah. Right? It just doesn't exist, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's certain scarcities we can only do so much about. Now, there's a lot of environmental solutions to the water shortage. This is a Bitcoin show. We're not going to get into that one today. But yeah. if you go back in time, there was a time in history where men spilled the blood of other men in wars over the control of salt. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's pretty horrific if you think about it. Now, there's no mm-hmm. conflict over salt today because we figured out how to make salt abundant. So abundance is the cure to most of the conflict in the world. And if it's not the cure, it's at least the mitigator. And I've heard it said in Bitcoin, and I think this is absolutely true. I don't remember who I heard it from first, so I can't give proper attribution. But you can have scarce money or scarce everything else. Yes. If the I money is scarce. Jeff Booth, Jeff Booth talks a lot about this. That, that might have been Jeff Booth. Might have been on your show. Um, that, to me, is really where we're hitting at because if you create scarce money, Mm-hmm. then you have a situation where you can have an actual meritocracy. It doesn't mean there won't mm-hmm. be winners or losers, Completely. but losing maybe hurts less and winning maybe doesn't look so much like spiking a football. Yeah, exactly. No, I completely agree with you. That's exactly what we need. Right now we have abundance in money and scarcity everywhere else. And what we need is scarcity and money so that we can have hopefully abundance everywhere else. And I, I am a believer now that I've done so much research into economic theory and macroeconomics and the history of money that capitalism is actually the way to bring about the most prosperity for everyone and the most access to opportunity. Will there still be wealth inequality? Yes. And there will still be inequality in general because, you know, a lot is determined by sort of your birth lottery and then what skills and education that you gain and what you bring to the table, what you put out there. Some people just want to sit on the beach and they don't want to work. Some people want to put in 70 hours. Some people want to take on massive risk and create like we're all different. Right. But but there shouldn't be a system that is so unfair that only the people at the top that have access or who are close to the money printer, the monetary spigot, get access to easy money, cheap loans. They're able to buy back, you know, their own stock, pay themselves crazy bonuses, get a bunch of real estate um, because of easy loans or easy money, and then like make everyone into renters in the country. I mean, the system is just right now it's about rent seeking and who you know and how politically connected you are. That's not fair. That's not capitalism. That's not capitalism at all. No. <laughs> and so I hope that Bitcoin kind of ushers in again, this idea of personal responsibility and there are no companies that are too big to fail and backstop by taxpayers. So everyone could just socialize their losses and privatize their gains. That's not what America was actually built on. And we've sort of bastardized the foundation of what this country stood for and what it could have become because we exceedingly just pushed money, money further into the hands of government. And now the, they're the most powerful people in the, in the country, I would argue, and in the world, right? These central bankers, the people in the White House. Um, and really it's, it's sad to see that there are no consequences when there is failure of policy. Hmm. When, when things go wrong, they maintain their jobs. That's crazy. That's so silly to me. And so there needs to be a shift, but there won't be a shift until we really wake people up to like how the system actually works. And, Bitcoin is beautiful in the sense that, you know, I talk about all this stuff and like the Bitcoin's the solution, but I'm focusing so much on the problem because until you understand the problem truly, you don't really appreciate the solution, which I think is Bitcoin. I agree. And I think that like what the, the angle now is, of course, Bitcoin is destroying the environment. And this is energy fed by people who have no idea where Bitcoin miners and how they source their energy because they don't want to waste money. They want to get the cheapest power they can. So they're buying surplus power. They're using gas flare flare energy that would happen anyway. Um, But it it seems like the whole control apparatus is built around everything is pollution and we need a cleaner environment. I had Guy Swan on Tuesday 
And what he said is, if you want to find people that don't care about pollution and just pollute everything, find me poor people. Right. The poorer people are, the less time they have to be concerned. I have to feed my child tonight. I can't care about the fact that this is a toxic thing. Like the idea that we actually preserve the environment comes from a place of stability. Mm -hmm. If I don't have to worry about feeding my family this week, this month, this year. Oh, I have time to worry about how can we do this in a more environmentally friendly way. But it seems like the solution is make people as poor as possible because then they'll use less resources, which is. Really, it's completely counterproductive to the stated goal. And I don't know if the people that are making that claim are incompetent or immoral or both, but (laughs) it doesn't seem like the right path at all to me. Yeah, I definitely think it's more incompetence and lack of education. I truly think that it should be a requirement for people who run for public office to understand economics and not just the Keynesian economics, but like truly have a fundamental understanding of interest rates, supply and demand and how economies function and how money works. I really like I wish that that was a requirement. Um, But no, I think that, you know, going back to incentive systems being broken and um, the government's now subsidizing and energy industries that they deem that they deem appropriate or right and this whole ESG model and all of that when there are counter arguments and counterpoints and there's so much misunderstanding about energy and how it's used and how um how those ecosystems function when it comes from an economic standpoint we have so much you know i think misinformation about nuclear we have so much misinformation about mining and like how much electricity it uses compared to anything else in the in the world and legacy systems and so again like we need to shed light on some of those things because energy use is not bad. We need, we need energy in order, like in order to function and progress society, we need to use energy and we have an abundance of energy, but some of it we've chosen not to tap into. We choose instead to buy it from other countries when we could literally produce it right here. I mean, some of these things are just so silly and it's like, who is making these decisions? I I truly want to believe, and I think this is because of my background, like I am a person of faith. I don't believe that people individually, except for maybe a few, have malicious intent and that they're just like inherently evil and they want to go into office to just like hurt everybody. I don't want to believe that. I'm sure that there are some people that are genuinely corrupt, but I hope it's few and far between. I genuinely think it's incompetence and and lack of education and lack of understanding of the big picture and connecting the dots and just getting lost in the, in the kind of like chaos of, of information from staffers and everybody who's also lacking education and the media that portrays it one way. Um, and I don't know how to fix that on a large level. I like choose to focus on, you know, helping everyone I can sort of understand and leading like a small movement and helping people understand, educating them on the financial system. But on a grand scheme, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, especially with our policymakers. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of it could be attributed to uh, Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Bonhoeffer being a a writer and a minister from uh, the time that we had the Holocaust go on in, in Germany. And he said that there is no more dangerous of people than people who have been made stupid. And he doesn't, he didn't mean intellectually slow. You could be very intelligent, but you could have been made stupid by the system. So yeah. when you say you don't attribute to malice any more than you have to, I, I grew up at Catholic, was, went through Catholic school for at least part of my childhood. And one of the things that when I look at the modern education system and I go back to the 1980s when I was in school is that even in Catholic school, we had a comparative religion course. 
right? So we learned about the Protestant Reformation in Catholic school and how it actually had an impact on the Catholic faith and, and perhaps made it better in some ways and solved some problems because now you had to do something to admit your own problems. Mm-hmm. But we also learned about like the Hindu faith, the Buddhist faith, et cetera, mm-hmm. not so that we would become one of these people, but so that we would be aware. And when I look at modern education, specifically at the university level now, you know, you mentioned Keynesian economics. Well, you only teach Keynesian economics, right? And maybe you give a byline for two seconds to Austrian economics as this crazy crackpot theory yeah. or something like that. So you end up with an entire group of people who are convinced they're smart. I have a master's degree in finance, right? Yeah. I have to be smart. My piece of paper says so. So yeah. the very definition of really being stupid is to believe you know a thing and a thing is wrong, but right. have no ability to even see the crack. Yeah, no, no humility. I completely agree. You mentioned Keynesian stuff, too. So, like, this is, like, an interesting thing I picked up this week, too. You really have to judge even Keynesian economics with when when that was developed by Keynes. We had a gold standard. And gold was the governor of government, so it was also the governor of economic systems. So, mm-hmm. you, it, 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 as flawed as it may be, it was probably yeah. a lot better with, with a, a, a finite centralized resource. And I didn't know this uh, at all, but apparently... He, Keynes actually postulated the concept of stateless money at some point as well. So, like, like we judge everything today based on today mm-hmm. in our educational system, our political system, our media from the past, and we don't say, well, what was the what was the ground like at the time? And I think that that's contributed to a society that is so tribal that you know I offend everybody. Both sides are stupid. It doesn't mean intellectually slow, <laughs> but they're stupid in their behavior, and they're dangerous because. You can't rationalize what's stupid. Like a person has to be willing to have their ignorance cured to get past the ignorance that they're dealing with. And when you're operating on ignorance, but you believe you're correct, you're dangerous. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think we have, I'm not going to say all our problems, but many of our problems or the problems we have are made worse because of this. I, I would really agree with you. Um, it's interesting to study kind of Keen's background, and I know some of the Bitcoin authors in the space have tackled this, but just that idea of, you know, kicking the can down the road, which I think we see right now in our fiat system of debt and inflationary policy, where it's like, oh, well, uh, Keen's saying is like, in the end, we're all dead, right? And there's these animal spirits or something that create some of the bubbles we experience. But no, there, there are actually reasons why we have booms and busts. And I think that people need to be a little bit more critical and analytical of our education system, because at the end of the day, if it's the Department of Education and if it's the government that is, you know, um, signing off on curriculum, well, of course, they're going to probably sign off on curriculum that makes the government look really good and and extends the amount of power that they could possibly have in every aspect of society. Right. Like that power they want to maintain as much as possible. And so we do have an education system which may be considered rigorous and and, and uh, better than other countries in the world. But like it's meant to reinforce what the government is basically saying. And I think we don't have enough enough critical analysis. It's one of the reasons why I'm actually really happy that we have the internet and YouTube and all of these places where it's it's a democratization of information on a global stage where you can actually start to question some of the things that you've been taught and, and ask the right questions and maybe dig dig in for more information because history you will start to find isn't as factual maybe as you were under the impression of when you were younger. It's actually very subjective based on who wrote that history and who's telling you that history. And so we need to be a little bit more analytical. And unfortunately, most people um, don't have like a great background in terms of getting an education 
education and especially economics or history. And we need to do a better job as a country for that. I'm a huge, obviously, proponent of better education, more financial literacy. And and it's sad to me to see like this was actually, I think, a statistic that was portrayed in an HBO show called Newsroom, which I used to watch because it was about my industry uh, with um, yeah. Je- Jeff Dan. I forgot the name of the guy, but uh, but he talked. He gave this like massive speech at the beginning of how like America's not the greatest country in the world anymore, and he listed off reasons, right? And he was like, "We're 46 in education, and we're this and this and this." Yeah. Well, like we need to be honest about some of those things, so we can say, "Oh, we're the superpower, we're the greatest." Well, actually, you know, we're not that great when it comes to some of the aspects that are fundamental to progress and societal, you know, functioning, including education. Um, and yeah, so I, I really think we need, we need more work there for sure, uh, because people have skewed, a skewed idea of what economics is, I think. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about you, you, you left mainstream journalism, you started mm-hmm. doing your own thing. And two of the things you developed since then, you have a podcast called Coin Stories, which everybody in my audience should subscribe to. It's awesome. Thank and you, you also have a new show called Hard Money. Can you mm-hmm. kind of tell us the genesis of those two things and, and what they're all about? Yeah, so Coin Stories came first, and that's my podcast. And I'm super grateful that it has grown to make me be able to do it as a career. It's, it's amazing to me. Uh, but basically, that came again from my journey down the rabbit hole. I was so fascinated not only by just all the information that I was learning about the financial system, but I was fascinated about the people who were having these discussions from podcasts to the books that I read to Twitter. I discovered Bitcoin Twitter. And I, I questioned myself, like, where, who are these people? Like, where did they come from? What were their jobs? What were their backgrounds like? Did they come from financial security or insecurity? Are they immigrants? Are they, did they come from wealthy families? How did they discover Bitcoin? Why did they believe in Bitcoin? Like, why is this important to them? Um, and those are the questions that I think were in my head because I'm someone who, I've always loved people. I love studying people. That's why I think I was naturally inclined to journalism. I like to know why people are the way that they are. And I've always loved uh, biographies and autobiographies, especially if, if, if you watched a journey or listened to a journey of someone overcoming obstacles or rags to riches, just something inspiring. I've always loved those stories. So I thought, well, I'm going to just like for fun, for a hobby, maybe people will be interested. I'm going to try to interview some of the biggest names in Bitcoin and just see like, where do they come from? What are their origin stories? How did they discover Bitcoin and why, why do they have conviction in it? And maybe some reaction to, you know, headlines surrounding Bitcoin. Uh, so I started reaching out. People started saying yes. And that podcast grew very, very, organically. So I've had really the biggest names in the space from Michael Saylor to Lynn Alden to Jeff Booth to Preston Pish to, you know, all these big names that you might follow. Um, and it's their whole backstory, their whole life story, who they were and before Bitcoin and after Bitcoin. And uh, so that's my podcast. And um, and then recently we launched a show called Hard Money, which is produced by Swan Bitcoin and Bitcoin Magazine. And it is a once a week news show. Since that's my background, it's a video news show that gives you Bitcoin headlines, but also ties it in with global economic news. So the Federal uh, Reserve actions that they take, interest rates, inflation. Um, we kind of bridge that divide because I feel like in media large. No one's doing that. No one's talking about economics and finance, but also Bitcoin and like intersecting those two worlds. So that's the show. We have uh, interviews every week. We have original stories. I'm super, super grateful to be a part of it. So you can catch our newest episode actually uh, on Thursdays 
Uh, so tonight, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Swan Signal YouTube page. Awesome, awesome. So who was your favorite guest so far that you interviewed in, on Corn Stories? Because it literally, you have a playlist called Great Minds of Bitcoin on, on your YouTube mm-hmm. channel, and it really is, right? So who was your favorite? I know it's like picking your favorite kid, but. Yeah, um, I can't, I can't give you one. I'm going to give you a couple. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say Jeff Booth. Um, he is just so brilliant and thoughtful and makes me think about so much from like, he makes me think a lot about the future and the kind of world we can build with Bitcoin and the kind of system we can we rework from one of again, debt and credit and just the cycle of money printing to one of value and, um, and, and just Bitcoin allowing for us to, to potentially act, actually be more equal in society and have more access to opportunity. So I would say Jeff and he's an, he has an awesome backstory. Uh, Michael Saylor is always fascinating. I learned so much from him and I know a lot of people are, you know, they tune in because they really want to hear Michael Saylor. Uh, he's just, you know, he's brilliant. I can ask him a very simple question and he'll go on these brilliant tangents and I just, I learn, I study, I study how he talks about Bitcoin because I think he's really um, constructive and thoughtful and intentional about how he sees this really becoming a very competitive, um, you know, advantage for the United States if they make proper legislative uh, decisions on it. And he's so active in trying to help make those legislative decisions happen. Uh, and I just and, and he's also really committed to giving back. He wants to help educate the world. And he wants to provide free education. And so I just think he's. I think he has like a, a good heart behind him. Um, and then Lynn Alden, I would say, I mean, again, I like I learned so much about macro from her and she has this fascinating backstory where most people don't know she was homeless as a child. Uh, she had to overcome a lot of financial insecurity and obstacles. And now I would say that she's one of the most brilliant minds in the space and in macro and finance at, at large and investment at large. Um, and so her story was cool too. So I just named three. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. But then you also had, the big bad on Peter Schiff. Yeah. And I hadn't listened to that one yet because I didn't know something. And somebody put a clip of yours up on Fountain today. Somebody I follow on Fountain uh, FM put it up and I listened to it because it was like a two minute clip. And it turns out you did something nobody else has done in this space yet. (laughs) You got Peter Schiff to admit he wished he had bought Bitcoin, which I guess is not an endorsement of Bitcoin. It's just the, uh, (laughs) obviously I could have made billions of dollars with a small investment of my net worth. I mean, I made a video, like a viral video, long, long time ago, and it was like the the, the Bitcoiners tearing apart this warthog. It was lions on the series. They tearing this white warthog apart, and it was like the IMF and the World Bank and all, and they're all eating it. And then the last lion that finally comes walking in out of the scrub at the end, I had Peter Schiff on. And uh, it kind of feel like that's kind of where he is. But how did you get freaking Peter Schiff to admit he wished he had bought Bitcoin? Because that's... <laughs> That we should like if there was a podcast award like like if we did something like the Emmys or something you should get an award just for that. You know that that's one of my favorite clips. I just published it the other day again because of what he's been commenting about the bank stuff in Puerto Rico and what happened to him and confiscation of funds and freezing of accounts. And I'm like, you know, Bitcoin fixes this. And he wishes he <laughs> said to me, he wished he bought. But yeah, I have a clip that says, clearly, I wish I would have bought Bitcoin. Um, I don't even remember the question I asked him, but you know, it's just funny because I actually really like Peter Schiff. You said uh, if you went back in time. What would you tell your younger self? Yes, that's what, that's what I asked. And he just I was like, what would you tell yourself? And, 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 and literally the question was open-ended. He could have said anything. He could have yeah. been like, well, I wish I would have whatever. Harder. And he goes, literally, I wish I would have bought Bitcoin. Uh, super great answer and moment in my show. Um, but you know, it's funny. I, I have to say this. 
Peter Schiff is brilliant when it comes to economics and monetary history. And on my coffee table at my house, I have a couple of books um, that are just my favorite books that I've read about Bitcoin. And on that actually pile is his book called The Real Crash, which has nothing to do with Bitcoin. But I recommend it to people because he... Peter Schiff was, you know, he was Dr. Doom or Gloom or whatever. And he was the guy that was interviewing people um, in the Occupy Wall Street videos. He really has been calling out the problems of our easy money system and big government and crony capitalism for a long time. And he predicted that we were going to have a crash. And we he predicted the the unwinding of everything that happened in the financial crisis, which, you know, he discusses really thoughtfully in the book because he says that, like, well, that should have been our crash. We should have allowed things to fail. It would have been painful in the short term, but we would have been better off in the long term for all these reasons. And he goes through like the history of our financial system. And also he breaks down every aspect of government that he would change to a more small government, uh, hard money focused uh, like way or formula. And it's it's really brilliant. It's fascinating. And it touches on so many of the principles that are f- popular with Bitcoiners or that Bitcoiners really believe in. Um, but it has nothing to do with Bitcoin because he's a gold bug and he believes in gold. But I really recommend that book because it teaches you that we didn't really have like we thought that the financial crisis was bad. But the real crash that's coming when, you know, we can no longer keep playing the music and, all, you know, the music stops and everyone has to find their chair. It's going to be far worse than what we would have experienced in 2008, 2009 had we really let things fail and crash because now the bubble is so much bigger. We have a tech, you know, and an equities bubble. We also have a real estate bubble. bubble. We have an everything bubble. Uh, and we can't keep kicking the can down the road forever. Like we think we can, but it's leading to all this wealth disparity and frustration and wealth concentration and it's leading to civil unrest and it's leading to, um, I just think a breakdown of, of the fabric of our society and the fabric that once made this vibrant, beautiful middle class and the representation of the American dream that people wanted to come here for, including my family. And so, um, he predicts that we're going to have an even bigger crash. And I believe that that's where we're headed. And thank God that we have Bitcoin as this sort of peaceful parallel system that we can exit into at any point and start accumulating and start saving in Bitcoin as an insurance policy against this system, which is based on debt, which is based on crony capitalism. And, and it's not fair and it's unjust. And, and like we have a solution and his solution is gold, but like, you know, Bitcoiners always point out the issues with gold. Um, so I hope that Peter someday comes on board and it'll be great. He, he said that if, if Bitcoin's being used as some, a medium of exchange and it becomes a unit of account that he will admit he's wrong. He told okay. me that in my show. Okay. So I'm waiting for that day. Yeah. We'll, we'll, I, I, we'll see if he does it right. Like, cause yeah. I, sometimes I think he's just a master troll and him and his son are playing a good cop, bad cop and the oh, ba- yeah, greatest scam on planet earth, honestly. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, he's like secretly stacking all this well, Bitcoin. He, if you go to his website, he sells gold for Bitcoin. So I, of course he oh. would probably tell you he just converts it to cash immediately because most people they, gold for, wait on online. You can buy. Yes. You can buy gold for now. Maybe he stopped doing it, but I know at least at one time, Peter Schiff, you could buy gold from his concern 
for Bitcoin. I'm going to investigate this. <laughs> okay, investigate. You're an investigative reporter. Go, go forth and investigate. Yeah, no, but um, I really, I really do like him. He's super smart. I wish he was into Bitcoin because we agree on all the same problem. Yeah. We just disagree on the solutions. I, I see him a lot like I see a lot of uh, vegans, right? So vegans are great at identifying the problem. <laughs> I, I too object to taking thousands of cows and having them stand in their own excrement up their elbows at a CAFO. I think that's a horrible solution. I too want a cleaner environment. I also think that if you plow a field down to nothing to grow soybeans, you destroy all life in that field. Mm-hmm. So the solution is putting a cow that's supposed to eat grass where grass grows and making more grass grow and putting in lots of trees so the cows have shade so they don't die in the heat. So like Peter that is revolutionary. I don't right? know what I mean, it's of. crazy talk. It's not like it ever happened before with buffaloes running around or anything. Right. So like um, Schiff identifies this problem perfectly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, like, let's let's just give credit to a guy that's been in the business in the world a long time. He's an older gentleman and he's dedicated his life to this study at the time that he discovers th- this problem for himself. What is a solution? Well, gold is a solution. And gold is, at the time, it's there isn't another solution. It's what you have. Mm-hmm. But then you spend your whole life building a case for this thing, and this new thing comes. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard at that point to let go of yeah. the old thing. I mean, I look at it. I, I've seen people get mad at me when they talk about the boiling frog thing. And I'm like, you know, that's not true, right? You know, if you put a frog in water and start turning the heat up, the frog tries to get out. And they get angry just because they've said it so many times, like now yeah. they have to defend it. I think there's some of that there because when it comes to identifying the issue, with the current system, he's not wrong. You know, pride can be so toxic. And I actually think that this is playing out so much in our current environment of just like global politics as the result of the pandemic, like new science emerges that basically questions what they were so adamant about, about masks or this or that. And they can't get off of that podium to be like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, maybe we were no politician has the guts and the courage, the honest courage to just say, maybe we were wrong. And what what an amazing, like, could you imagine if we had more politicians that were just like, God, we tried this. And I think we got it wrong. So let's try this because we really want to get it right. And we we admit we were, we were wrong. Like, instead, we have these people that are just glorified, you know, political publicists go up there and spread propaganda and sh- stuff goes wrong. And they're just like, no, 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 we knew it was inflation. Of course, this is not true. You know, it's not transitory. It's corporate greed. It's this, it's that, it's the greedy gas, you know, owners, whatever. It's just, why can't we have more humility? I, I, I can admit when I do something wrong. Right. And, and my, my background encourages that I, you learn from your mistakes. We learn from our failures. Nobody's perfect. Um, uh, but man, Find someone in government that's willing to admit their mistakes. Even the ones that corrected didn't admit they were wrong. Like my governor, uh, Abbott, and Florida Governor DeSantis get a lot of credit for being open when the rest of the country was closed. Mm -hmm. They still closed down their freaking states. And when they changed, they were just like, well, we've done this now. We have to transition. We can't do this anymore. But neither one of them came out and said, you know that stuff I did in the beginning? Yeah, the reason I'm changing is I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And, like, yeah, I've, I've not seen a lot of that. Um Let's talk about you again, though. Let's talk about the fact you entered Bitcoin in my notes here. 2017, I think you said. Yes. Okay, class of 2017. You've had your ass kicked a few times. So, like, (laughs) um, you know, Bitcoin's down right now. Um, If you kept buying through kind of that cycle that led to a bust in 2018, 2019, and real – Real huge correction that happened back then. You could be holding Bitcoin that you've now been holding for four years that's back where it started 
mm-hmm. or, or through it. H- yeah. How does that make you feel about uh, Bitcoin long term? Because I think a lot of the people on the outside all think like, okay, we're all going to run away. And like, I've been in this game since 2013 in earnest. And I think I got wow. my first, bought my first Bitcoin in 2012. Oh, um, so I've also spent a lot of it because back then we were trying to onboard people. So we would, we would do what you're supposed to do with it. And it was, you know, a thing. So I, I wish I had kept all I had bought, but I've been through the, <laughs> the beating so many times now. I'm kind of with Michael Saylor. It, it just goes up forever if you zoom out. Yeah. How, how do you feel? I mean, you've been through it at least one good one now and a, the most recent one. Okay, so I'll share two points on that. Number one, I've been in in since 2017, and I saw it run. I I got in, I think, at the four thousand or so, four to five, okay. six thousand, and then I saw it run up to twenty. I'm really proud of myself that like when it cro- I never sold, never sold, yeah. held on. But here's the thing, I'm kicking myself because. I didn't go down the rabbit hole. I, I, I did what so many people do. And I was like, Oh, this is just a, this is just the new, like digital trendy thing that Silicon yeah. Valley's doing. And it's like, it's like investing in Facebook or investing in whatever early. And it's like a stock or it could crash or it could be hacked or it could blah, blah, blah. I just didn't get it. I didn't have the humility to take, to go down the rabbit hole. And I had a mentor who was telling me, read this book, the Bitcoin standard, read this book, the Bitcoin standard. And I sat there and I was like, I don't want to read a book about computer science and computer. I don't want to, well, I don't have time for this. You know, I've got, I've got stuff to do. And I really regret it because had I taken the time then I would have probably gained more conviction and put, I had, I was always a really good saver. I think from my immigrant background, I was always a really, really good saver, but I saved in cash and I could have put in way more than I actually did. Cause I didn't understand the thing, but here's, but my second point is what's your time frame? What's your time horizon, right? Because Bitcoin may be down right now over the last year or, or, you know, a couple months down 30, 38% in one month of the month of June, but look how much it's up over the last four years, five years, six years. You have to like widen your time horizon because if you truly do believe this is a, a very young monetary network, a very young technology network, and you see its potential as the best savings technology and pristine collateral, then you should want to be in it for the long term and, you know, dollar cost average, all of that. I, you know, I'll admit I bought, you know, chunks at 50, 60 that I'm just like, oh God, I could have had, you know, twice as much if I just would have waited. But none of us have a fortune cookie that told us that this crash was going to happen. I, if you listen to my show and you listen to some of the interviews that I've done, I've done some shows with non-Bitcoiners that talk about how I believe and they believe that there's going to be a deflationary bust that happens because we are at the end of this long-term debt cycle. Things need to shake out. They printed way too much money and there has, there's a consequence for that on a global level. Uh, but I did think that Bitcoin would ascend to higher highs or it would have more of a blow off top or it would get to the six figure mark and then maybe find support around like the 50 K range. I did not think that it was going to go back down to the levels we're seeing now. And I think one of the reasons it's been hurt is by this like crypto ecosystem at large, this contagion effect of things that are cross collateralized with mm-hmm. Bitcoin that, you know, people have to sell their Bitcoin in order to pay off loans and debt and all of that. And it's just, 
it's just a mess in a system that doesn't have bailouts and will get cleansed. It's a healthy cleansing, but it's painful. It's painful, painful, painful. But this is how actually capitalism would, would function if we had it in, in the greater markets. Uh, so it's painful now, but I have this long-term view on it that I am not worried that it's going to continue to grow, gain adoption. Developing nations are need it more than us right now to combat inflation and autocratic governments and oppression. Um, and I'm super bullish on it long term. It's just right now, it's kind of like maybe, you know, you know, and you need to like allocate a little bit more to cash or be a little bit more careful about how much you go, go in on in chunks because it might go down lower. You might need cash for your expenses. So we're in a very volatile time right now because of these macro factors that I, I assess with some of my, uh, my, uh, interviewees. Um, but long term, like I think that Bitcoin will be a global reserve currency. I agree. Asset. I, agree. I do. I do. Here's where I come from on it. I've been doing my podcast since 2008. Mm-hmm. And all the way, I started it right before the big financial crisis back then. And yeah. I was this completely unknown person. I was actually in corporate America back then. I was a COO in a holding corporation. Wow. And um, I, my partner, uh, this guy named Neil Franklin, had really high level financial advisors and said, this whole thing is going to go to hell and get your money out of the market. And um, at the same time, I had a client who was a financial advisor and he wanted a website and one of the companies within our fold was going to do the site and our lead web developer could not figure out how to handle RSS feeds for podcasts, which is basically throw an extension in there and it does it. So I'm like, I'll figure this out. So I started doing my show in my car and my first message in preparedness was protect your hard earned dollars. And I was, I was saying this is going on. And after it happened, you get some credibility and all. And then I was going into economic lessons with the audience. And this is way pre Bitcoin for me anyway. And I was saying that we were going to have a monetary rebasement of the dollar. And, of course, you're a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, and that's what you're talking about. There's a rebasement. What made me completely sold on Bitcoin was what I realized is we can have another rebasement on the dollar like we've had in the past, like 1933, Mm -hmm. uh, like a a lesser impact, but 1964 with the Silver Coinage Act, like 1971 with Nixon. These were all actual defaults on the dollar that rebased the dollar. So the plan of the state would be to do another thing like this, right? So you can either let them do it with their money again, or we can take this alternative and the monetary rebasement can go to Bitcoin. And if you told some of that 10 years ago, they'd like, you are nuts. I think when you say it today, people like even that don't believe it's going to happen, they're still like, well, it won't, but maybe it could, you know, or they won't let it happen. And I think that like in the end, the market markets, right? Like you can tell people you can't do this. You can tell people in Russia in 1985, you can't buy Levi's. But if you went to, to Russia in 1985 with a pair of Levi's, you could get just about anything you wanted. You could, If you wanted a cab to pull over and you held up rubles in 1985, the cab drove right mm-hmm. past you. But if you yeah. held up a pack of Marlboros, right, yeah. that car screeched over. So, like, markets are going to market. And if this choice mm-hmm. is available, I think that people more and more are beginning to make it. Yes. No, I completely agree. And I think that people need to just zoom out. I mean, this is a very young technology network that very few people understand. It's extraordinarily nuanced because it requires a real thoughtful understanding of our current system and what's wrong with it. And, and, you know, people could understand Bitcoin a little bit and not really understand why it's needed or why, what the greater mission is. Uh, and there are so many macro factors at play. I mean, I think that we are entering into a decade of deglobalization. I think that we have benefited so much over the long-term debt cycle we've been in from being the petrodollar, from being the global reserve currency. But that 
that era is ending and countries are starting to see, hey, when you're just printing money, we don't want to hold your treasuries anymore. And we don't have that much faith in, in the U.S. dollar like we we did in the past. And I think that the inflationary events and the crises that are playing out around the world are going to cause some currencies to collapse you know, first into the dollar and then maybe someday into, into Bitcoin. And I think that we're just in a, in a phase of such change. And, and one of the reasons why this current, you know, cycle moment is so painful is we've never been at the end of a debt cycle, but Bitcoin has largely benefited from quantitative easing and from money printing. Like we, we would be lying if we said it didn't, right? It's, it's from birth to current day. It has existed in QE. That's that's what our government has been doing over the last more than decade. So now that we are entering into a phase of QT <laughs> and we've printed all this money, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to Bitcoin. I think it could drop lower. It could also, you know, at some point, I think it will decouple finally. But more people need to understand it for that to happen. We need more clear pathways when it comes to a regulatory front. We're getting there, I think. Sad that we couldn't get a spot ETF. That sucks. But, you know, we do have legislative um, officials that are recognizing this as a digital commodity, a digital property. Some of them are educating themselves to make, you know, appropriate decisions when it comes to Bitcoin mining. We Lots of work needs to be done in that space. There needs to be fair accounting for more companies to come in. We need these institutional avenues because no matter what some Bitcoiners say about we don't need the like we I believe we do need the institutions for more retail and greater adoption. And, um, you know, hopefully people can stack as much as they can because once those companies come in, guess what? They have way bigger pockets and they can scoop up Bitcoin at higher prices at levels that people can't. And so that's, you know, again, why I'm trying to get the word out because even if you allocate, you know, 0.1% to Bitcoin, some just something, you're going to be able to get it right now at prices that you won't when big institutions come in and are starting to gobble it up because now there's these, you know, institutional green lights for them and on, on ramps. Um, so I, I, I would rather, you know, the people obviously get yeah. it first before the yeah. companies, but we'll see what happens. Well, I mean, to kind of get the scarcity, people don't get scarcity in their head. So I did the math. MicroStrategy right now controls one one hundredth and sixth of all Bitcoin that will ever exist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how many corporations are there out there that are bigger than MicroStrategy? Mm-hmm. How many of them have to take a fractional position like that before? Because then there's only how much Bitcoin available on exchange that people will actually sell before yeah. you get into like a level of scarcity where people start talking about the price of Satoshi's instead of the mm-hmm. price of Bitcoin. And I think yeah. that's when that happens, that's when we're game on. I think on the, the spot ETF, um, when that happens, it's almost game over right there just because of the amount of the wall of money that that will unleash through 401ks, IRAs, et cetera, where yeah. it's simplistic. And then it's kind of the government's blessing. I personally think they're delaying it because they haven't filled their bags yet. Like that's the actual thing yet. Like, cause they know, like once we pull the lid off this, it goes, cause the correction right now, if it was historically the same as it's been since inception would put us at a bottom somewhere in the 14 K range. That's where we would come off of a 69 K all time high. So, you know, can maybe you can shake it out. Cause that's how, that's how they play every other game where they buy anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think now my case for the, uh, ETF though, as a, as a moral case or as a legal case is, is, is totally different than what I get out of it as a Bitcoiner. It is, we have ETFs for cadmium. Yeah. We have ETFs for timber. 
We have ETFs for corn. We have ETFs for silver. We have ETFs for gold. If you can think of a thing that is a commodity in the world, we have an ETF for it. Material and non-material commodities. We have ETFs for everything. To single out Bitcoin and say, oh, you can't have an ETF for this is inconsistent with U.S. investment law. Mm-hmm. That's that's my opinion. And and then I'll take all the benefits that come with it, please. Yes. And it also answers this thing of like, how do I invest in my retirement? I have people all the time asking. We've had a few people here today. Like, but if I do like a Bitcoin IRA, I'm giving up, you know, that not anonymity, full control, et cetera. There are some that you can hold your own keys in. But now, supposedly, maybe that's not legal. I don't know. But I look at it the way I've had a lot of people want to invest in silver and gold over the years. And I said, if you want silver and gold and you want physical metal, you don't want it in IRA. You have completely anonymous money that you can do anything you want with. You put it in a mm-hmm. safe in the floor of your house with fire protection, mm-hmm. right? If yeah. you want to hold silver in an IRA, you buy a, you buy SLV. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and so that's kind of how I'd like to see Bitcoin have like that two different worlds where you want to use that retirement money that's, that's in the state's gaming casino. Then you use the state's – it's not the state's Bitcoin, but it's the state's vehicle. It's the state's uh, – you know, holding mechanism because you're in the state's world. It actually makes more sense that way because I also think the tax advantages are not that big a deal unless you're a trader. And I, I, I'm not a trader. I'm a DC every day kind of guy, you know, you, and I yeah. wish I would have done more of it over the years. Right. So now I do as yeah. much as I can. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you, you made several really interesting points on the spot ETF. I will say, I, I disagree with the decision as well. It would have led to price discovery and more institutional on-ramps and, and retail on-ramps. Um, but I do think that it's also a bit nuanced, and I do want to take the time to research it a little bit more because, you know, a lot of the commodities you mentioned are sort of managed and regulated and operate mostly okay. here in the U.S., and there's a lot more control, um, whereas, you know, a lot of these exchanges and a lot of the, pl- the markets for Bitcoin are international where there isn't as much um, oversight and, and ability to sort of audit what's happening. And so I know that that comes into play as well. I will say that, you know, people can, like, criticize Gary Gensler, and I don't know his true motives and intentions. I don't know him, but I I did take the time to watch his like 15 or 20 hour MIT lecture about blockchain, Bitcoin, um, and digital currencies. And like the guy knows his stuff. Uh, so I think that we're actually lucky to have someone who understands Bitcoin and seems to be a proponent of Bitcoin and publicly uh, uh, identifies and labels it as a digital commodity. Um, and I, I think in the end, more, you know, the right decisions will be made. Maybe we just, we just need a little bit t- more time. But there is a really good attorney that was hired by GBTC to sort of fight the recent decision. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, I would agree that there is some nuance to it. Now, as far as auditing the underlying commodity, there's nothing more auditable than a blockchain. But uh, shifting, I I, somebody just asked this, right? And I, I, it actually is next on my list. Uh, maximalism versus toxic maximalism. So I would call myself a maximalist. Uh, Peter McCormack on Twitter today actually said, can anybody define what Bitcoin maximalism is clearly? And so I said the definition of maximalist is one who advocates for the immediate and direct action to secure the whole of a program or set of goals. So a Bitcoin maximalist is one who advocates for the immediate and direct action to secure the whole of the adoption and implementation of Bitcoin. And so by that definition, I am a Bitcoin maximalist. I also think we've gotten to a place with, I guess what's called toxic maximalism is it's okay to be a shitcoiner to a degree as long as you haven't previously been a maximalist 
And then if you say anything or do anything or think in any way, like it, it's almost like a religion, like you're an apostate. You've committed blasphemy against the – and I, I am not a fan of <clears throat> true toxic maximalism. But then I, the other side of it is I think a lot of people call any maximalist toxic maximalist because if I don't <laughs> agree with you, then I'm toxic. I, what are your thoughts on that whole – Is it because I don't know that it's helpful – That when somebody asks a sincere question, like, well, what about the block size limitations or whatever? People mm -hmm. start shouting at them. I don't think that helps spread Bitcoin. Yeah, so I'm definitely of the the mindset and belief that we should be, as Michael Saylor says, cheerful and constructive, and I try to be as much as possible. I view Bitcoin maximalism as someone who puts the majority of their uh, net worth or asset allocation to Bitcoin as opposed to anything else. The toxic side, you know, it's difficult because at the end of the day, I'm a believer in free markets, but at the same time, I also don't believe that people should be scammed and that, you know, we should have a system in which people sort of lead the sheep to the slaughterhouse, if you will. Uh, so I've always been very wary about cryptocurrencies and, you know, I'm, I'll be really forthcoming to my audience. I could be, I, I'm trying to be, get to a place where I can retire my parents. I really, that's like a driving force of mine is I want to get to a place financially where I can really help my family and set a foundation for myself. And I'm not there yet. I wasn't in Bitcoin in 2013. <laughs> um, but I, and I've been offered so much money to hawk like these pre mines and these new tokens that come out or NFTs. And I turn it down because I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror or sleep well at night if I knew that I was going to lead someone to invest in something where they could potentially lose their life savings. And like, I don't know what the company's intentions are or who their VC backing is or, you know, how these coins all operate. You know, anyone can create a cryptocurrency just like anyone could create a blog or a website. And so you inherently take on more risk by investing in the space. So I warn people, like, just be careful. I do believe that we're going to exist in a world where we have a DeFi industry and we have other tokens or other digital assets that people allocate their money to. And cool. Like, I, I wish people well with their investments. I'm a maxi in the sense that I don't do that because for me, it's like, I have to research all these companies, all these backers. How, how did this, you know, function and work? And at the end of the day, to me, it's like stocks. It's like, why does it have to be so hard to just save money? And Bitcoin addresses that very problem uh, within our financial system that we don't have a, a savings technology in our money. We have to turn our houses into savings accounts. We have to invest in the stock market and try to play risk and hire portfolio managers or become day traders on the side. It's like, why is it so hard to just have money that retains its value? And so I focus on Bitcoin because that's what I see Bitcoin's potential as. And I feel like I've also been on the journey where I entered in and I bought a couple of shit coins and then like I ended up <laughs> losing did. on them because I didn't exit at the right time. And if I had put that money in Bitcoin, I would have been better off. And so you kind of learn, right? So I, and I, I like when people are honest about those journeys of I shit coin and then I Bitcoin and you know, but I'm not going to be toxic. If you want to put your money into whatever, I just say, Hey, do your homework and be careful. Like, be careful because this space is very unregulated. It has people that don't have great intentions who are greedy, who are going to sell their bags and not tell you, and you'll be left holding the bag. And I just don't want to see that, especially for people who are good and hardworking. Um, because the last note I'll say about that, crypto is like this populist revolution, in my opinion. I think it's mm -hmm. people who basically said, like, look, we've been left out of the legacy system and we want a shot. We want to, we want a shot to get like back at this and like get, get, have some money, get rich or whatever. Like 
so if, if you have a ton of people entering into the industry, buying up these tokens with that goal in mind, I think that it inherently leads to a potential bubble as well. And people who, you know, allocate based on hearing that, oh, this meme token took off 1 million percent. And then all of a sudden, like it's down and, and these companies are kind of benefiting on the, that, that volatility and those trades. And you just have to really, really be careful. Um, because I, I'm in this space to change our money and to take care of my family someday. And I know that Bitcoin can help us get there. I don't know about any of these other things. I don't either. I, I look at it this way. Most of the shit coins that have been sold are the promise to develop a thing. You know, we're going to develop this, this distributed VPN technology or whatever yeah. it is. Well, go make the thing. Yeah. Right. Instead of putting out the token, it's like pre-selling a stock on a thing. And then most of it, the founders give themselves money. They have yeah. a pre-mine. They have some bag they create for themselves. As soon as they get it onto an exchange, they liquidate the vast majority of it. Yeah. They make a ton of money. And now my incentive to work hard on the thing is gone. Yep. I've already made more money yeah. than the thing would have ever made me. So exactly. let me go do another pseudo thing. And, and then there's yeah. a lot of backdoor scamming. I'm sure you've heard with some of your guests how that works, where the reason you do the, the scam is because then you get in with all the other scammers and they're all pushing money around. It is it's a nasty space and it doesn't mean none of them will ever be anything, but you're basically going to the over the counter big board stock exchange and throwing a dart at a wall. And mm -hmm. I've yeah. did my share of it. I made money. I mean, very <laughs> few did I get wrecked on. I made money. I got out at the right time. Um, <laughs> I, I even flipped Doge one time in the middle of a telegram chat live, like threw, threw up screenshots here. Watch the, they're going to pump it. Fine. I can do this. I took like a thousand bucks in affiliate income and, threw it onto an exchange, flipped it three times in two days and, and put it into Bitcoin and left. You could play that game, but it's like playing with a snake. And what happens is people get into a mark, like everybody gets in when the market's great and then they buy some shit coins and then everything goes up and they think they're a genius. Yeah. Right? What's that called? The, the curve. Um, uh, yeah. uh, somebody's going to say it in the chat here. Dunning-Kruger. Right. Like your confidence yeah. is here, but your knowledge is here on the graph. Like you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And and then reality sets in and your 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 confidence plummets. And then you either can't continue to gain experience or you don't. And if you do, then your confidence goes up. And I I think there's a lot of that that's happened. And and I I have slowly been drug against my will because it didn't yeah. make sense to me that there would be one. Like that would really be the one. But when I look at it. That way, Bitcoin is its own value. It doesn't yeah. need the thing or the marketing or the, 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 the you're back to that absolute scarcity only once. Yeah. Now, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make a comparison that some okay. people like disagree with, but it's, it's a good way for me to visualize and conceptualize kind of what you're talking about, especially with the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. I see Bitcoin as the emergence of the internet in the nineties where most people don't have the foresight to understand how this would transform how business is conducted, how we communicate with each other, how information spreads. Like we just don't have that concept because we never had anything like it. And you're basically like, like if, if the internet was emerging and there was like tokens associated with the internet and, and, and it's growth and it's value as a network and you're able to purchase like some of those you know, plots of digital real estate or, or tokens versus everything else is like websites, like Google, you're, you're betting on Google, MySpace, pets.com, Facebook, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. Some companies and some websites, they will take off and they will, there will be network effect and they will have their own purposes and use cases that I'm sure 
other people will define and we'll have some sort of metaverse that I don't even want to think about because I like living in the real world. Um, but like at the, the most foundational base layer of what money is, I believe will be Bitcoin. Bitcoin will be the internet of money. And like for me thinking about that, I'd rather put my money and my bet on the internet rather than a website. Yeah. Yeah. So what to me, a lot of these, these, these alternative coins were built on the idea that Bitcoin couldn't do this thing or that thing or the other thing. And now we have lightning and now we have liquid and now we have mini mints and all these types of things that are being developed with layered technology, which I think is a very good thing. I think people don't understand it. So they initially reject it as being, you know, centralized instead of decentralized. But I look at the base layer that is Bitcoin as the underlying asset. Mm-hmm. The real value. And I want to be, I want Bitcoin devs to be as conservative with it as possible. I don't want a lot of risks taken on it. It works really good the way it is. Let's not mess it up, but we need this innovation, this agility to, to try things, right? So if you try it on a second layer or a third layer solution and it flops, Bitcoin don't care. It's the mm-hmm. honey badger. It doesn't, it doesn't give a shit at all. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, well, that thing failed. So what? And people say, well, Bitcoin, no, it didn't. It's like when Mount Gox got uh, hacked way, way back in the day. Bitcoin price went down, but you know, we just began the Bitcoin obituaries where it's died like 800 times now and it rises again. Yeah. So if we have those layers, we can try a lot of things and a lot of things are being tried. I'm looking at things like geyser doing fundraising, uh, what's being done with value for value podcasting. God bless Adam Curry for what he's done with that and how that's sprung into all these different apps like Breeze and Fountain FM and what have you and, and podcasters getting value from listeners and listeners getting back the value from podcasters. And it, it's like, it is like when altcoins started to come out and there was all these ideas being thrown around. And it, I think it's part of what sucked people in early. Mm-hmm. And so there's a ton of exciting technology. And I know you're talking to tons of people in the industry. Is there a particular technology or a particular application of a technology that's really exciting to you right now in Bitcoin? I mean, I just think it's the growth of the Lightning Network and the scaling that it uh, promotes and, and creates the opportunity for. I just I'm I'm watching it closely because. Right now, we're not at a level where a bunch of merchants can come on. It's just we don't have that scale where we have the ability and we have enough nodes for for that to be possible. And so we need to create that. It needs to grow. Uh, there are some tremendous companies working on in, on this in the space. I really applaud. I, one of my dream guests is Elizabeth Stark. I would love to talk to her because she's doing so much to to promote the growth of the Lightning Network. Um and, uh, and, and we, they will enable through tarot, you know, stable coins on top of Bitcoin. I think stable coins are going to be really important in this whole ecosystem, uh, as this technology develops and emerges and more people adopt it. Um, but lightning is the thing that I think will allow more and more people to use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange and, uh, and allow for more adoption in that, in that sense. But we still have ways to go. Lightning Network does not have that many transactions on it yet. So we'll see what happens. We'll see in five years. I think that the the growth rate will be exponential. What I love about the layered solution, let's say Lightning isn't all it's cracked up to be. Somebody will build one that is. But right now, it is, it's my thing. It's my jam. It's like that's where all of the yeah. stuff is. When, when I realized what Strike does, for instance, when I realized, for instance, I can take yeah. my phone and I can buy – I can deposit $50 into Strike. I can hit a QR code and I can deposit onto my cold storage wallet from mm-hmm. Strike without actually ever buying Bitcoin. That the mm-hmm. transaction itself creates the conversion and deposits the Bitcoin into my cold storage. I'm like, 
oh, it's over for the legacy payment. Like the payment systems are what's going to get slaughtered by this first. Because if I can cross-border yeah, move money right. to any jurisdiction and yeah. I can move dollars, I don't even need stable coins to do it right now. I can move dollars because they're liquid everywhere, 24-7. Yeah. And I'm transacting in assets and the legacy payment uh, is, is, is transacting in liabilities. Like, good, like you're going to get just a merchant experience and savings. Uh, I had an account that I was debating with and he said, you know, I use Swift. It ain't that bad, whatever. And I'm like, and he, he's, he's legit. He's doing big transactions international every day. And I'm like, you know, if I, back when I was in corporate America, if I had an accountant that could save me millions of dollars a year and they didn't do it, I would fire them. Yeah. No ideology whatsoever. Right. Just wait a minute. I could have saved, I could have gone from 3% of transaction to a half point on all, mm-hmm. or at least even 25% of these multi-million dollar transactions. And you didn't mm-hmm. do it. You're so fired. And, and so to me, that's exciting. Yeah, Jack Mallers does a really great job talking about this and building this space um, and this the layer two solutions. And he's working with major companies and trying to educate the IMF. So I highly recommend a lot of like the work that he's put out in the interviews he's done about this. Um, and just really the idea of revolutionizing a system that hasn't been updated in many, many decades that, you know, takes a slice away from everybody as, as sort of that third party mechanism that we currently have where you introduce like, people that are, you know, taking a cut from the the customer, from the merchant. And like, we don't need to have that. We can have something instant that's settled immediately and that's lightning speed, that's verified. And I mean, I would love to have technology update this very archaic system for sure. It it needs to be done. So we got a few things from the audience. I've had you an hour 15. I don't know if you had that much time blocked off. Can we lightning around this though, before you go? Yeah. Okay. Lightning round. All right. So Natalie, I'd love for you to share the central banking as a chemical agriculture analogy again. It's fantastic. I'm not sure what he's talking about. Was that you? I don't, maybe I don't one know your what guess? that is. The central banking as chemical agriculture. I don't know what that is. I, I, I could go somewhere, but I won't because this is your time. Uh, let's see. So I think maybe he heard that from a guest of yours and maybe not even on your show. And that's why we're both going. I'll have, to, I'll have to think about it. It, it sounds like safe. It sounds like Safedine to me. I actually is what that sounds like. Uh, thoughts on El Salvador's progress with Bitcoin Beach. Yeah, so I've had the chance to visit El Salvador twice uh, this year, and Bitcoin Beach is just its super um, impressive to me how immersed Bitcoin is in that community and in that local economy, and people are spending and transacting in Bitcoin, uh, and uh, and there's just like a, a just a very fervent business kind of environment and energy there. I spoke to a place called Hope House to women, young women. Uh, many of them are are moms, but they're trying to start side businesses and Bitcoin's enabling them to do that. Because again, you can kind of work from anywhere and you can, all you need is an internet connection and your phone and it enables you to start to uh, accumulate or spend or, or, you know, transact value. Um, the one thing I will say that I found in, in El Salvador that though is there still needs to be much more education because the, you know, the administration kind of came in and said, we're adopting Bitcoin, but people don't understand what it is, especially like older folks and people in certain communities that don't have as much access to maybe digital information. A lot of people are unbanked. And so they're naturally wary and, and hesitant. And there isn't a, how do I put this? There isn't like a pattern or a, um, a like behavior that is, that is common in El Salvador of just saving. You mm. kind of live paycheck to paycheck. Sure. Some people take out loans. Like I, I interviewed some people at local markets who 
in order to purchase the goods that they sell, they have to take out loans. And sometimes yeah. they have, you know, higher interest rate on those. There isn't this idea that like, oh, we have a savings account the way that, you know, Americans are so used to like a 60-40 portfolio or whatever, 401k, you know, to teach someone how and why to save is its own sort of mission and challenge. So Bitcoiners, what I love about the Bitcoin community and Bitcoin Beach, they are encouraging people not only to just start, you know, um, transacting in it and using it for their business, but also, hey, put some away that you don't touch, like save, start to save. Even if it's just like a few sats, like here, have this and don't touch this account. And it's going to be volatile in the short term, but like this is like your bank account for the future. And so I hope that that emerges more, this idea of accumulation, savings, capital accumulation. And I'm happy for El Salvador that a spotlight is put on the country. You know, they are seeing more tourism and more investment. And I'm curious yeah. to see what's going to happen with the Bitcoin bonds. But I was really impressed and uh, and encouraged and inspired by what I saw in El Salvador. Yeah, I, I think that it's hard for Americans to get their heads around. I lived in Panama for two years uh, in the 90s in Honduras for six months. And the idea that you're going to save money when you don't have money. Like Bitcoin, yeah, I think, exactly. encourages savings. Yeah. I've seen millennials save more money than they've ever saved once they get into Bitcoin because they start thinking yeah. about the future. Yes. But that's because they can give up a couple lattes a week. Like mm-hmm. that's not a thing in, in rural Honduras, I promise you, nor rural yeah. El Salvador. I've right. not yet been there. Um, right. Non-Bitcoin question, Natalie. What's her favorite Polish meal? What's an example of this? Okay, so I, uh, I've, I'm from Poland and I also lived in Italy. So my two favorite cuisines are Polish and Italian. My okay. favorite Polish meal is something called kotlets habowe and it's essentially like wiener schnitzel. It's like a breaded, uh-huh. flattened pork and it's sauteed and oh my God, I love it and I make it a lot. So for me, I grew up in kind of like this region of Pennsylvania that is just all Slovakian. It's there's Polish, yeah. there's Ukrainian, there's Georgian. I mean, it, it's it's a, just a mix. And like everybody, everybody looks the same, but everybody knew who everybody was, right? And it was all cool. We we're all messing with each other. But there's a huge food overlap. So I mean, Ukraine, part of Ukraine, used to be part of Poland. Yeah, yeah, for history, sure. Right. So for me, it was pierogies, and mm, yes, the the best good. is when you take them, they're poached, and then they go into the pan, and they get browned on both sides, and you put the butter and the onions on top of them. And I'm all carnivore now, and I, I can't talk about this anymore because it makes me hungry. Um, what have you both found to be the most effective way, if any, to talk to people in your lives about Bitcoin that don't get it yet? It's a challenge. It's for sure a challenge. I've been successful at orange pulling some people and not so successful at others. Um, you know, I just try to start slow and uh, really p- put a focus on the problems in our system and how Bitcoin fixes them. And I really don't I don't encourage people to like, oh, my God, you put it, put it all everything that you have into Bitcoin right now. I say, hey, what's it going to hurt if you put one percent into this, if it takes off? Amazing. And if it doesn't, are you upset about 1%? You know, like it depends how wary people are. Uh, I think you just need to start slow. But the more that you introduce, hey, have you ever thought about like the reason that this problem exists is because of this? And like, oh, did you know that like with money printing, do you know this? Do you know this statistic? I try to introduce things like that because I think something clicks and resonates. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a challenge because everybody's different. Everybody's rabbit hole journey is different. I try to seed plant. So I'll like so a little bit about it and go away. And then they'll hear about it in the news and like the FOMO kicks in and then they ask and they give you permission. Yeah. And then my, my target is always entrepreneurs because I'm always like, why don't you just, why don't you just accept it? Yeah. Why don't you just accept it? Like, cause you lose nothing. If nobody buys it, it doesn't matter. And I'll help you 
because it's not that hard to start accepting Bitcoin, especially like content creators. Like just throw a QR code on your website. It's not the best security practice, but when you start getting Bitcoin, let me know and we'll fix it. Right. And then what I've been using lately is lightning because I'll just tell somebody like download wallet of Satoshi or something like that. Like, and I'll just send them a dollar. Mm, that's cool. right. Just send them a dollar and they watch that dollar like instantly there. And they're like, what yeah, do I do? Right. They're like, watch it. And when it gets bigger, let me know. And I'll help you get more of it. Cool. And like that try is. to plant seeds and walk away. Cause plant seeds. forcing, <laughs> forcing information on somebody not ready for it actually makes them less receptive. Over I agree. Time, right? I agree. Um, what sources does she use for legitimate relative info on crypto reporting versus hype and shillers? I think that would be as a reporter, on any information you want to gather. Where do you get relevant information? I know well, the answer, but yeah, I, I triangulate, I quadrangulate. I, I just, I go to multiple sources. You know, there are a lot of outlets now that report on crypto or digital assets from ones that are really within the space. And, you know, the coin, the coin desks, coin telegraphs, Bitcoin magazine, Bitcoin magazine, I've contributed to, to, um, you know, at large, like legislative updates are often covered by Bloomberg and by CNBC and all of that. And I really just, I try to, I try to read everything, but I'm, I will say that most of the best information that I've gotten are people that are really thoughtful thinkers and strategists and economists in the space. So I follow the Lynn Aldens, the Preston Pishes, the, mm-hmm. you know, all the people that like they tweet most of their information or they do podcast interviews as opposed to like articles that I would read. Um, and, you know, and I try to get to the source as much as possible, which is what I try to do with my show is bring people on and let them share the story. And another shout out for Lynn. You guys, if you're not following Lynn, you need to follow Lynn. Lynn is one of the most brilliant minds in, in economics and finance, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if you could send one person to Orange Pill Joe Rogan, who would it be? Me. I was going to give the same answer. Me. <laughs> I would do it. I, I would love to of go course. on Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, hit me up. Yeah, Joe, let's, let's go. You bring us both on. We'll orange pill them together, of course. Yeah. Now, I guess if you had to say somebody other than me, like to, to pin us down. I don't sailor. know. Sailor. Sailor or Maulers. Yeah. I think would be who I would, I would, I would ask to do that. Um, please ask, are Bitcoin RA, IRA safe or the next thing to implode? I don't think they're going to implode. I, my problem with Bitcoin IRA is I don't think the law is clear yet. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more clarity. I think that you need to do your own research on companies. Um, and so I, I have a Bitcoin IRA that I'm very happy with. And uh, and I I haven't seen the kind of concerns that we see in the greater crypto contagion with some of these platforms that were really uh, didn't have the proper reserves and all of that. Um, so I just I urge people caution, like you really have to do your own homework because I, I, I can't give financial advice on that. And, and I have one too. And it's, they say you can't, like people are starting to say you can't self custody, but I have self custody. I have a multi sig. Mm-hmm. And so it's a two of three multi sig yep. and the company holds one and I hold two. I could move it there. right out of there. Now I've got tax consequences. If I do that, they're going to report that, but yeah. I have self custody and they don't have access because they only have one of the keys. So yeah. I don't know where this is coming from. I'm not sure if maybe a new yeah. thing came out of bull. I, I have to know. hop. I have to hop off. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, Natalie. Well, hey, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Guys and gals, uh, she stayed longer than we had planned. So thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Sorry about that. Thank you, guys. No, no, no worries. Bye. So for those of you that uh, caught the live stream on that, when I signed off with Natalie, I should have stayed on that live stream for another five minutes and wrap things up with you. I apologize for that. That was a big interview for me, and my hand instinctively when she signed off went to the end button. And once you turn it off, 
you, 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 you can't turn it back on. You can literally leave the room, but when you hit end, it is a one-way terminal command. So sorry about that. That was a fantastic interview. Um, she's an amazing person. And as much as I think we gained from the Bitcoin conversation, what really intrigued me and what really made me want to bring Natalie on the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout was the initial conversation about mainstream media, about leaving mainstream media. And again, guys, Natalie didn't leave mainstream media from some sort of low-level peon position fetching coffee for people. She was an award-winning journalist with a great salary. So it takes guts to step out. And then the other part was the deeper conversation about the problems in the world. And yes, we're talking about it from the perspective of Bitcoin fixes this. Because I, I do believe fix the money, fix the world. And again, fix doesn't mean perfect. It just means a hell of a lot better. I think one of the ways you have to understand is, let's say you brought me your car, and you had this busted-ass old jalopy car, and it was like a, uh, a, a 1975 like consumer-level car. It's not, and no matter what I do to it, it's not going to be a, a Ferrari. And if I put it back into the shape that it was in 1975 when it was brand new and had one mile on it, I fixed it. It's, it, it's still probably not as good a car as we make today. So fix is a relative term. Fix the money, fix the world. In other words, give everything a better shot at being equitable, right? Um, if, and, and I don't, I know that some of you just got triggered by the word equitable. I don't mean equity the way the wokes mean it. I mean it, it, it from a, a standpoint of the purity of the word. That equitable in that there is a meritocracy at play. That somebody who really does work harder, is smarter, does better than someone else, does at least as well as that other person. Not they do well just because they exist. That That is actually a terrible world to live in. Nobody wants to live in that world. And when people use the term equity today, a lot of times that's what they're talking about. That is a non-starter for me. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for equality of opportunity for people. And like Natalie said, there is something to a birth, birth lottery. I think that's something that many people on the right don't want to admit, that there is a birth lottery. Like, you did win the lottery if you live in America by being born in America versus being born in El Salvador. Even though El Salvador is turning into a better place to live right now, it, there's a lot... Whew. There's a lot of advantages into living in the United States over El Salvador, and many of you could go to El Salvador if you wanted to, and the fact that you didn't shows that that's the, the case. There is a birth lottery in being born, let's say, in Texas or Florida versus New York. If you're still young and you have not yet had the chance to migrate, you're, you have parents, you're still a, a teenager, and COVID hits, and you have Como as your governor versus Abbott as your governor or DeSantis as your governor, right? So there is a certain place that we start from. But you, what, what, what you would like to see in the world, if the world is to be a more fair place, because it will never be a fair place, but a more fair place is at least everybody to have a shot. At least everybody to have a shot so that if they exchange their labor for value, that the value holds across time. And that is one of the many things that when we say Bitcoin fixes this, and fix the money, fix the world, that we're talking about. Anyway, hope you guys did enjoy that one. For those of you tuning in on the Bitcoin breakout feed, I'm going to go ahead and have the same sign-off on both the Survival Podcast side and the Bitcoin breakout side. So I want to let you guys know that uh, at thesurvivalpodcast.com, I run a little website called T-SPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z, T-SPAZ.com. It's a way you can help support my show just by starting your online shopping there. You're going to buy something online, you start there, whatever you buy eventually, you help support the show and the work that we do. And... 
We have items that are lifestyle items that are just fun items. We have items that are more like household items, cooking items, homesteading items. We also have some that are true preparedness items, and today's item of the day is a preparedness item. It's called Tard Bank Line, right? Tard Bank Line, and specifically made by Catahoula Manufacturing. What is Tard Bank Line? Tard, Tard Bank Line is, is cordage impregnated with, guess what it is, tar. Now, why would you want this? You want this because when you, when you attach tarred bank line to something, when you bind something with tarred bank line, when you build a structure like a lean-to structure with tarred bank line, when you tie one, a piece of it to a limb and you do limb line fishing, it doesn't untie. It binds onto itself incredibly well. Here's the problem. You can go to Amazon and you can type in tarred bank line and you can find a whole bunch of different people that make tarred bank line. That what they make is black string with no tar on it. If it's not got tar on it, I know it's shocking, it's not tarred bank line. This is the stuff you want. Uh, and many people in the preparedness world are big into uh, parachute cord and what have you. It's great stuff. It has a lot of uses. Bang for the buck and the most utility, Catahoula Manufacturing Tarred Bank Line is the way to go. There may be somebody else that makes a decent one. I don't know. If I can't put my hands on it, touch it, feel it, smell it, I'm not buying it. I know I can trust this brand, and that's why it's my brand of choice on tspaz.com, where you'll find all kinds of really cool stuff. Uh, with that, we have wrapped things up. want to remind you guys, again, you can also join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the Survival Podcast dot com forward slash members to learn more about that. Of course, I accept Bitcoin. Uh, I accept any cryptocurrency. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're paying something other than Bitcoin, it's going to get converted into Bitcoin, but why would you care? Uh, I take Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, etc. Uh, basically, it's a discount program. You you buy a membership in it. You're supporting the show. It's 50 bucks a year. It's cheap. And then you use your discounts and you get your money back uh, buying things that you probably are buying anyway. And you can see all the vendors and what they offer. Uh, at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. And a little thing that I always do when people offer to pay with Bitcoin, it's a manual process, and I do a discount. And it's a good discount, and I don't ever say what it is until you fill out the form and say you want to pay with it. I send you an address, and I send you the two different options. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout. They're gonna bail you out or just run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way